This afternoon, we're going to be Matthew chapter 2. Next week, we'll be returning to our Hebrew series. I'm eager to get back to that. Um, Today, we're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'll explain why we're doing that in just a little bit. But Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come, come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ to, where, where the Christ to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father, we have just heard not simply words that were penned just by men, but rather we have heard your words. We pray, Father, that we'd receive these as such, your voice. And would you take these words and the truth that they communicate deeply within our minds and our hearts, that we might be more conformed to the image of your Son, that we might be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that we may be able to test and approve what your good will, good and perfect will is. We ask our Father that you would make these truths real to us, we ask that you would guide this preacher, that you would chain him to the text of your word, that he might freely declare truth and do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> As mentioned last week, and I believe in weeks before, we oftentimes think of the Christmas season or Christmas as one day. And well, there's not a necessity for for Christians to celebrate a particular pattern of Christmas or even to celebrate Christmas as Christmas. It's a good it is good to it is good and necessary to remember the incarnation. And so to remember uh, to pick a day of the year to remember the incarnation is specific is a is in my mind a very good thing that is not run afoul of scripture. The Christmas season, as historically understood, is not simply one day. Rather, what we call the one day of Christmas, historically, and 
is actually the first day of 12 days of what is known as the Festival of the Incarnation. And after that, of course, 12 days has passed, so no longer are we in what's historically called the Christmas season. However, we are now in what is known as the Epiphany season. And we're not going to do an extended series on the Epiphany, but the truths that are communicated um, in the passages by which we see Christ revealed are very important for us. And so I think it's good once in a while to spend some time on these things. Epiphany comes from the Greek word epiphaneo, which means I reveal. Epiphany is a recognition of the revelation of Jesus as Messiah, not only to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. Some of the key texts, we read one at the opening of the service in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. There's also, we also read earlier from uh, Luke chapter 2 with Simeon, that's another uh, verse that has to do with the revelation of Jesus Christ in who he is as Savior to all people, Jew and Gentile. In John chapter 12, we have after the Greeks come to the disciples inquiring about where they might find Jesus. Immediately afterward, Jesus is, str- Jesus is troubled and he says, my hour of glory has come, meaning that the revelation had come to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. And the passage which we read from today a beloved passage, a story of the wise men or the magi from the east coming to find Jesus who was born Christ and to present him gifts. And these men from the east were not Jewish, but rather they were Gentiles. And, those to, and, they, and thus Christ was revealed as the Christ to these wise men, to these magi. In the story that's in many of our minds, when we think of this event, we oftentimes think of it in terms of the night Jesus was born and three people riding up on camels, approaching the Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and bowing before. In reality, this probably happened sometime uh, between his birth and two years old. We don't know the exact time frame. And secondly, we're going to learn that picture of uh, three guys on camels is probably not the best picture, the best idea of what actually happened. There were three gifts, and I think that's where we get the idea of from that communicated in that song, We Three Kings of Orient are, Orient meaning East. <clears throat> Rather, as we're, we're going to see, these magi or these wise men uh, were not simply folks who, uh, priests of some sort who had their own little temple or whatnot and were discussing things, but rather these were very inf- important and influential people in what we know as the ancient Parthian or Persian, em- or Persian uh, world. The empire was since gone, but the, there was still the Parthian, <clears throat> uh, the Parthian, the, the Parthian rule. So that's that beloved story. And we're going to, if we have that in our picture, we might be a little bit uh, shaken with what we hear about who these men were and what was communicated. Uh, But who were these magi? We read about them here in the passage that these men from the east, wise men from the east, 
They came to Jerusalem saying, where is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For they saw the star and came inquiring. In order, to, in order to understand this and get a better idea, we're going to be doing a bit of a journey through biblical history. We sometimes might get the idea that this is the first time that we're introduced to these people from the east called magi or wise men. It's actually not the first encounter in the scriptures, nor is it the last encounter in the scriptures. There's a couple of folks who are called magi appear in the book of Acts. But these wise men also appear in the scriptures of in the Hebrew scriptures. Remember in the Hebrew scriptures or what I, we also call that the Old Testament or we call it the First Testament. <clears throat> there are three main empires that Israel interacts with. In the Hebrew Scriptures, there's the, of course, there's the Egyptian Empire. There's four: the Egyptian Empire, and then there's the Assyrians, there's the Babylonians, and then there's the what uh, historians call and is in the Scriptures the Medo-Persian Empire. The Egyptian Empire, Israel had been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years and they were delivered at the Exodus and they were brought into the land of Canaan. And with the Assyrians, they had many battles with the Assyrians after they had successfully uh, <clears throat> uh, defeated the Philistines and all the various different ites, you know, the Hittites and the Amalekites and such throughout the land of Canaan. And one preacher I heard call them all the ites. <clears throat> And the Assyrians were quite often quite the thorn in the side, especially in the latter years of Israel and both the northern and the southern kingdom. The Assyrians sacked the northern kingdom and later, without sacking the southern kingdom, subjugated Judah as a vassal state. That is, Israel paid, you, you might say, paid protection fees to Assyria. And uh, the kings ruled with the blessing of the Assyrian king. And, of course, who was Assyria protecting uh, Israel from and all their other various states? Well, of course, they were protecting them from themselves. Assyria was, they were, pay, countries were paying Assyria and paying homage in order to say, don't invade us. It was a very powerful empire. And the story of Hezekiah, in Isaiah 36 through 39, and also found <clears throat> for some reason, my phone heard Hey Siri. <laughs> So it's <laughs> well in the Assyrian Empire, <clears throat> they uh, Hezekiah was to pay homage to the Assyrian uh, Assyrians, and he uh, he actually rebelled against that and went to Egypt for help. And then Assyria laid siege, and of course Assyria later sacked the northern kingdom. Then there's also the Babylonians. The Babylonians they sacked the Assyrian Empire. And then they subsequently came and sacked Jerusalem as part of God's judgment against Israel for their idolatry and various different rebellions, for not keeping 
the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which was rooted in do this and live. And the southern kingdom, all the various different folks who would be decision makers and artists and intellectuals were all exiled uh, to Babylon. Then there was the interaction with what is known as the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persians, who were actually allies to the Babylonians in their conquering of Assyria, then conquered Babylon. We see that in the very famous um, in the very famous writing on the wall scene in the book of Daniel. We'll be referencing, referencing that in a little bit. But there's significant interaction with the Persian Empire. They were the ruling empire during much of Daniel. Is the ruling and is the ruling empire during uh, the sagas of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Esther was there under the Persian rule. What we know as uh, the per- uh, <clears throat> we'll talk about that later. In the New Testament, of course, there's also a couple of em- empires that are referenced. There's the Greek Ro- Greek Empire, which by the time of the New Testament, the Greek Empire wasn't wasn't much, but it had significant influence upon the New Testament time period. That was largely during that 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. And then there was the Roman Empire, which was the reality during the time of Jesus. Our focus today with regards to the Magi or the wise men is going to be on Babylon and the Persians. As we mentioned, both of them have significant interaction in the Old Testament with Israel, particularly in the book of Daniel. We also see interaction in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, as well as references in Chronicles. As I mentioned, the Medo-Persians, former allies to the Babylonians, uh, eventually defeated Babylon and took over what was known as the Babylonian Empire. In both groups both the Babylonians and in the Persian Empire, there was a cadre of men with whom Daniel interacted who were advisors to the king. The king had a number of advisors, people to whom he went and said, what should I do? What does the law say? And the law, of course, being whatever the kings, that king and previous kings had dictated. What does it our law say that we must do? And these are often translated into English translations as wise men. Wise men. Or sometimes as magi. The most significant mention of them is in Daniel chapter 2. And as we'll see by implication, he is actually among those advisors to the king. He is among those who have been appointed to advise the king, at that time being Nebuchadnezzar, the ruling king of Babylon. Because he is among those advisors, uh, those wise men who were facing extermination due to their inability to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He is among those who are at great risk. In that story, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and it greatly troubled him. And he went to his wise men and said, what does this dream mean? And none of them could figure it out. So Nebuchadnezzar said, off with your heads. Pursued them. And Daniel was among them to be pursued. But 
by God's divine hand, they and Daniel were rescued through the means of Daniel via through the way he interpreted the dream. As a result, Daniel was giving high honors and many great gifts, and the king made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel was the leader of the wise men, who eventually, in historical record, were referred to as magi. So keep that in our mind. Daniel had significant influence over these wise men in the Babylonian and eventually Persian Empire. He was bestowed with high honors and made their prefect. And he was a faithful servant of Yahweh, a faithful servant who was interpreting the scriptures. It was the wise men upon whom Belshazzar, that's Nebuchadnezzar's son, called upon to interpret the writing on the wall. You know that story. They're having a great feast. Belshazzar, the son of, Babel, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, king of, Babel, king of Babylon, and a hand appears and writes, many, many tekel parson on the wall. And he's greatly troubled by this. What, is, what does this mean? The wise men couldn't figure it out. And his wife, the queen, said, hey, there's this guy your dad relied on a lot. His name is Daniel. Why don't we go ask him? And Daniel went and came and told him, said, means your rules here at an end. We get that we get the phrase, the writing is on the wall from that statement, meaning that looks like it's over. The writing's on the wall. Told him your rule as a, is at an end, and that very hour, and that very time, the Persians took over. <clears throat> So while the king consulted him, it wasn't good news for the king. It was high-ranking advisors to Darius, the Persian ruler, who tried to have Daniel murdered as they were jealous of his standing. He was, again, he was one of, Daniel was one of three high-ranking advisors, and he was the chief of them. The king didn't like this, but the law of the Medes and the Persians did not permit the king to act otherwise, so Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. That is, because Daniel faithfully prayed to Yahweh and didn't pray uh, to the false god. But Daniel was spared by the power of God and was again exalted and continued his high rank. Again, file this in our minds as we'll be thinking of this later. Daniel had great influence in the Persian Empire and among this group, this group that eventually that became very powerful among the Persians, known as the wise men. One Christian author states, Daniel's position and influence over the Magi no doubt ingrained upon them the knowledge of the one true God and precipitated their search many years later for a unique king. As this person is saying, Daniel's influence no doubt, in no doubt was there when they were searching for this king. Hundreds of years later. You see, via Daniel's witness, this powerful group of men had been brought in, had been brought into confrontation with the rule of the one true God. In fact, we could even say with Daniel's influence, elements of Judaism infiltrated Persian life because of his powerful rank. Not Judaism full throated, 
And there's no, but there's also no doubt that the messianic hope of a coming king would have been something built into the theological psyche of the wise men due to Daniel's influence. Because Daniel had the messianic hope. It was in the interpretation of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. There was a messianic hope in there. <clears throat> of interesting historical note, Darius, in the 6th century, that's the 500s, after he brought the uh, he brought the Persians under uh, separated them from a polytheistic religion and brought them under it's still a false religion but under a monotheistic religion called Zoroastrianism, which at his, uh, which has a single creator God from whom all of life flows, but he speaks through the stars. But think of that, for an ancient pagan power to embrace monotheism instead of the common polytheism is actually quite extraordinary historically. We also see these wise men in Esther and in Jeremiah. In Esther chapter 1, verses 12 through, four, 12 through 14, the wise men were consulted with regards to Queen Vashti's refusal to answer the king's summons. That is to come join me for dinner. She refused. And by the law of the Medes and the Persians, he had no choice but to kill her and appoint a new queen. The advice of the wise men, uh, of what were called wise men. We see in Daniel, Esther 1, 12 through 14. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged. And his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marsena, and Memukon, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. So he went to the wise men who knew the times, who knew the law and judgment. And these wise men, being versed in law and judgment, advised the king. We also see someone referred to as a magi in Jeremiah chapter 39. <clears throat> then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Nergal Sar Ezer of Samgar, Nebusar Sekim of Rabsaris, Nergal Sar Ezer the Rabmaj, Rabmaj, or Magi, with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. Of course, when we read that account, Zedekiah saw that and he took off running. So we, here we have the biblical history. There's also just a bit, not too much, of a history lesson before we look at the New Testament appearances. The Persian Empire was an empire that, was an empire that historically was uh, no one had really been able to get a hold of, anyone who tried to conquer it. Alexander briefly conquered it and brought it under the rule of the Greek Empire. But he died, and he died an untimely early death. And he really did not leave an heir. So his empire fell into four hands due to his failure to, leave it, to have an heir. And all of these four people got along wonderfully. No, they didn't. They fought each other for supremacy. And while they were fighting each other, the Persians just said, you did the thing where we're just going to go. While they're distracted fighting each other. And they were no longer under the rule 
of the Greeks. They warred with each other, and the powerful Persians once again found themselves able to rule over their own affairs because they were isolated from the rest of the Greek Empire and what eventually became known as what eventually became the Roman Empire. And they were known in New Testament times as the Parthians, the same people. These people, the Persians, of interesting note, because a couple places that are frequently in the news, the Persians are the ancestors of the majority of people who reside in Iran and Afghanistan. The Iranis and Afghanistan, Afghanis are not Arabic. They are Persian. And the languages they speak are dialects of Persian, of the Persian language. <clears throat> and as we can see historically, those peoples have nobody still able to really conquer them. But by the time of the Roman Empire, powerful Rome had not yet been brought, um, had not yet brought the Parthians under their sway. That didn't happen until the mid 200s. Um, it was in large part due to the distance between Rome and the vast areas that Rome would have to go in order to conquer the Persians. They'd have to cross the Mediterranean Sea, cross the Arabian Desert. And by that time, they're pretty well separated from their centers of operation. And, you know, they didn't have uh, fast-moving navies and planes and stuff like that to resupply. And so, and, and the Roman Empire was greatly fearful of the Persians. They were afraid of them. And Israel was very important to them strategically because it was a buffer. It was a buffer. That area was a buffer between Persia and the Romans. And they were bitter rivals. Rome feared them. By the time of the New Testament, under the Persian rule, the Parthian rule, there's a ruling body called the Megistanes. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Megistanes. Kind of like a senate of sorts. It was composed entirely of what were called magi or wise men. They had the absolute choice. They alone chose who would be the king of the Parthian and Persian rule. They made that choice. They were kingmakers. No one could ascend to that throne without the assent of this group of wise men. At the time of Christ, there's good evidence that they were unhappy with their king and were looking for a replacement who would lead them on to victory against Rome. They had this in common with the Jews under the yoke of Roman rule. They wanted to beat Rome. Remember, they also had the witness of Daniel with a hope for a messianic figure who would bring about the age to come. There's very good reason to believe that the Tanakh, that's the law of the prophets and the writings, was part of the broader source material that the wise men referenced because of Daniel's influence. Daniel brought the Tanakh into the life of Persia. We, that's what we call, that's the Jewish name for the Old Testament, the Tanakh. <clears throat> like all peoples and rulers, the Magi had good ones and corrupt ones. We see a couple of corrupt ones in the New Testament. In Acts, in Acts chapter 4, we have Philip the deacon who went to Samaria to proclaim Christ. Among the hearers was a magician or Magi named Simon. And he wanted what Philip had for his own ends. And he went to Peter when he saw Peter and said, Hey, can I buy this gift from you? Can you show me this and I'll pay you? And Peter said, Your money perish with you. 
and rebuked him and told him, Repent and turn to the Savior. In Acts 13, there was a wise man, Elymas, the magician who tried to undermine the work of the gospel. He was struck blind, and the the leader he advised believed. It is in this context that we arrive at the Magi, or these wise men of our story today. We read, they saw a star from the east and came from the east, entering into Jerusalem. Now again, we have this picture that we have these three men, maybe dressed in kind of ornate garb, entering into Jerusalem on camels. That would not have been an uncommon sight. It probably would not have struck up much of, uh, much of anything. Even if these three are saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? As notice when we read, Herod was greatly troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Historically, the best argument for who these were is they were the kingmakers of Persia. Very important, powerful people among the Persians. The the ones who said, this will be our next king. And so this group of people, probably riding steeds, probably with a band of people with them, a lot of servants, a lot of others, in a grand procession entering into Jerusalem, inquiring, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That would raise a stir. And it's pretty evident who they were. These were well known who these people were. These people who are looking, who are the kingmakers looking for a king. They knew better than Herod and all the priests what was going on. That there was one who was born who was king of the Jews through the scriptures that most likely Daniel had left behind. And a star, that's God using natural revelation, general revelation, using nature. They found the one whom Daniel was prophesying was coming. Herod was extraordinarily insecure in his rule. That is, he feared, he was, he was, always, look, he was always afraid he was going to lose it. It had been named, he had been appointed king of the Jews after much dealing and wheeling by Caesar Augustus. And Caesar Augustus was about to die. And now you see this band of kingmakers from a land who had common goals with the Jews asking, where is the king of the Jews who was just born? Of course, Herod is going to be going, "Uh uh-oh. These are people that Caesar would respect. There's no, as we mentioned earlier, there's no reason to believe it was only three, only that it was plural. There was multiple of them. They brought three gifts. Doesn't mean there was just three of them. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And they were looking for a king. And if the historical record is right, maybe a king to appoint as their own. But here we see in the text, they were looking for something beyond that. They weren't just looking for a king whom they could appoint as their ruler. They may have been doing that. But they were looking for someone who is greater than them, whom they could worship. It says in Matthew chapter 2, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These were God-fearing Gentiles. Not having been, most likely not been, having been fully converted to the religion of Yahweh, but they were God-fearing Gentiles. Largely, probably because of Daniel's influence. They understood this one born is not just another man, or not just another born in the distant lineage of David, and had a long, uh, with a long since defunct throne. After all, Jesus was in David's lineage by Joseph and in the same lineage by blood from Mary. They saw this one as one who is to be worshipped. Daniel spoke about the Son of Man who would descend from the clouds. One who was a ruler. This was likely somewhere, somewhere in the vicinity of two years after he was born. Afterwards, we see that Herod... Um, after he discovered that everyone that the wise men took off in another way, so he couldn't inquire of them, and Mary and Joseph fled with Jesus, Herod went and had all the children, all the boys in Bethlehem, two and under, murdered. So sometime it wasn't right after his birth, but sometime between then and his birth in two years. So here, this is most likely who they are: the wise men of the Persian Empire to whom Daniel had given witness hundreds of years ago about Yahweh and about his coming Messiah, about his coming Christ, about his coming King. And they, knowing better than anyone in Jerusalem, Gentiles, he's been revealed and saying, where is he? We want to worship him. An epiphany had occurred and they wanted to know him. And we see the account of, the, of their meeting of the Messiah. <clears throat> of course, they were told it was in Bethlehem based upon uh, scriptures from the Old Testament. From the Hebrew scriptures. In Isaiah chapter... 7:14 Micah chapter 5 verse 2 <clears throat> But we see that they went to Bethlehem and they found him because the star had pointed them to Jesus whatever that looked like um, either way the star made clear this is where he is I don't know what that looks like or what that looked like <sighs> But notice their response. After listening to the king, verse 9, they went on their way and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Notice there was joy and also they fell down in verse 11 and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. They responded with joy at finding this one who had long since been promised. And they responded with worshiped, worship. And what is it? Who is it they worshipped? Was this something that was a grand display of power that they encountered? No. A little child under two years old. Probably, and based on the scriptures, not, not showing that it was anything other than a little child. 
He had no stately former majesty that we should, should, we should be drawn to him. And they fell down and they worshipped him. They could see. These were the first people outside of the inner circle that Jesus, to whom Jesus was revealed as the Christ. And these were Gentiles. Gentiles from a land far away. They saw that he, was to be, he is to be worshipped and honored because of his work on our behalf. And we see that in the very gifts that they give. We take a look at the gifts that they give. They gave gold and frankincense and myrrh. What is it that we think of when we think of gold? In the ancient world, who is it that typically had gold? Rulers. Powers, people in authority had gold, kings. This was not just simply some sort, of a, uh, some sort of a gift, here's some gold. Rather, it is a statement of the identity of Jesus. They are identifying this one as someone to whom gold is due. A king. This is a kingly gift. The, these wise men are recognizing Jesus as the king. One who is royalty. We know from scriptural revelation, he is divine royalty by virtue of his relationship to the Father. The next gift we see is frankincense. You, like me, when you were a child, may have heard this and had a picture in your mind of a guy with a square head and electrodes sticking out of his ears hearing Frankenstein. I did, heard that when I was a child. It was frankincense. What was frankincense? Well, let's take off the first part, Frank. It's an incense. It's a particular type of incense. I've smelled it before. It's a very pleasant odor. Frankincense is one of the things that was burned in the worship of Yahweh. It's a priestly thing. It's a symbol of a priestly role. It's communicating the priesthood of Jesus, being the priest, the one who ministers on behalf of God's people. Whether or not the wise men understood this, we don't know. But the fact that it's brought out in this text and understanding biblical history, I surmise that the text is telling us that. It's his priestly role. And what was myrrh? Myrrh was most commonly used as an anointing oil for those who have died. That is, they're covered in myrrh. As, you know, we, when someone dies, typically within six to eight hours, someone comes and retrieves the body, takes it to the funeral home, where it's then refrigerated and other things it's not the ancient world even that's actually relatively recent innovation nothing wrong with it just the recent innovation Um, but even as even as uh early as 150 years ago after someone died you'd leave them there for a while so family could come and visit and see the body of course what was they said about lazarus after he died and they wanted to open the tomb 
They said, he's been in there four days. My grandma would say, uh, after she'd smell something bad, she'd say, it stinketh. Myrrh was done to, for the purpose of, of reducing that. It was an anointing oil for burial. As they kept the bodies around for a while so people could come visit and pay their last respects. We might say that it was ancient formaldehyde of sorts. But what does this communicate to us? This gift of myrrh was given as a gift, as a burial oil. as communicating that he is destined to die. He's destined to die as a priestly role, as a sacrifice for his people. These wise men appear to have a better idea of who this king was than many who followed him even during his ministry years. With the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And we see that uh, <clears throat> they were warned in a dream through a special revelation to not return to Herod and then went to their country by another way, saving Jesus, not having to tell Herod where he, where he is. <clears throat> we think of there's, there's a number of different things that we can apply as we close this, and not going to be an immediate closure. Got a few things to say. We first, of all, we first of all see Jesus revealed for who he is to these Gentiles. Place ourselves in the first century as early readers of Matthew. Matthew is a very Jewish book. Even the Greek. It feels like I'm reading Hebrew. The way it's structured and everything like that. Most likely written to Jewish believers. And in part to argue for the inclusion of Gentiles into the community of faith. Because of the emphasis on Gentiles in different places in the book of Matthew. But we see in this book of Matthew, Jesus being revealed to these Gentiles from the East. People unlikely in the mind of the original reader to understand Jesus. Jesus was revealed to people the original reader would have least expected. So we should remember that Christ may be revealed to the very last ones we would expect him to be revealed. You know, they're they're those ones that we we see what they do, or even ones personally in our lives who we've hurt and we might think in the back of our minds, I hope they don't come to Christ. Minute, we all we probably all have that going on to some extent or another. <clears throat> but that Christ might be revealed to the very last ones we expect. Thus, we cannot have any discrimination as to whom to whom we share Christ. It should be an indiscriminate proclamation. We, there's another Epiphany passage from which we read earlier in Luke chapter two, verses twenty-two through thirty-two. When Simeon was presented, when Jesus was presented to the temple, Simeon was there and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation 
to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon here understood that Messiah had come for people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people, not just for Jews, but to be Messiah, to create a new humanity from Jew and from Gentile and every other different distinction within that. He's a universal Savior. Something we learn from this passage. He's a universal Savior for all kinds of people and classes of people and stations in life. We also see the response of the Magi to Jesus. How is it they responded with worship, with joy? When we think of our Lord Christ, we should find joy because of the great work that he has done on our behalf. Jesus, who lived for us, lived the life that we were called to live, that we could not live, died the death that should have been ours. And by his righteousness and by his death, we have been justified. And now, because of his spirit, we are being sanctified, made more like Jesus. And we have the hope of being entirely like him when we are glorified. This should elicit joy and should elicit worship that Jesus is one to be honored, to be obeyed by faith in him and rested upon. And they sought him out. Christ should be one whom we seek. We should look forward to the worship of him, to being together with his people to worship him, to engage in his word in our day-to-day life, to pray to him. This In the gospel... This Jesus is revealed afresh to us and is present to our faith. So let us rejoice and bow down before Jesus in thanks, trusting the one who is our redemption. We see, we sang the song earlier, What Child Is This? And in the epiphany to these wise men, that question is answered. What child is this? the promised Messiah who was sent on our behalf, whom Daniel foretold to the kings and the wise men, whose witness remained with those Persians. You can see that no little bit of witness, though we may not see fruit in our day, should be ignored, should be forgotten, should be thought of as as insignificant. We also see when we think of these magi and who they are and the history and the biblical history behind them, we can see that God is truly in control of and orchestrating history. God is working throughout history. His hand is upon history, including this very moment in which we live. We might ask, what is the most troubling moment in the history, in human history? And every generation will say, the moment in which I live. But here we see God is in control even of that, even of those moments. And he is preserving his witness. Even when it all seems dire and lost, he's preserving his witness those who remain faithful to declare that witness, even in the small little things. We see in this the, the revelation of who that one in the manger 
is. I want us to hear the words as we close of an old Lutheran hymn written by Paul Gearhart in the 1600s. It's called, O Jesus Christ, Thy Manger Is. Words reflect what is bound up in the hope declared in the passage that we've read. O Jesus Christ, Thy Manger Is, my paradise at which my soul reclineth. For there, O Lord, doth lie the word made flesh for us, herein Thy grace forth, forth shineth. He whom the sea and the wind obey doth come to serve the sinner in great meekness. Thou, God's own Son, with us art one. Dost join us and our children in our weakness. Thy light and grace our guilt efface. Thy heavenly riches all our loss retrieving. Emmanuel, thy birth doth quell. The power of hell and Satan's bold deceiving. Thou Christian heart, whoe'er thou art, be of good cheer and let no sorrow move thee. For God's own child in mercy mild joins thee to him how greatly God must love thee. Remember thou what glory now the Lord prepared for thee for all earthly sadness. The angel host can never boast of greater glory, greater bliss, or gladness. The world may hold her wealth and gold, but thou, my heart, keep Christ as thy true treasure. To him hold hold fast until at last a crown be thine and honor in full measure. Let us pray. Father, You have revealed Christ in history. You revealed him to these wise men. You revealed him to Simeon. You revealed him to Mary and Joseph. You revealed him to the twelve. You revealed him to Paul. And you have revealed him to our own hearts and brought us to faith in him. We thank you that we know him by your work pray you would help us to not keep that to ourselves, but to share that with one another. For we need to continue to hear this witness. But also, Lord, with those who don't know you, but they may have the revelation, the epiphany. Would you continue this work in us? And these things we pray, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.